It being Easter, the Sunday after Easter, let me ask you this question. I don't know if you've thought about it much, but here it is. Wonder, I wonder how Jesus' family responded to the resurrection. I wonder how his family responded. What are his siblings, his parents thinking? Now, church tradition tells us that Jesus' father passed when he was a young boy. We know that Jesus had a mother, obviously Mary, and we know that Jesus' mother Mary was there at the cross as Jesus hung on the cross. He tells John to take care of his mother. We know from Scripture that Jesus had siblings. So in Matthew 13, 55, it tells us that Jesus had four brothers, and it actually names them. It says their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. So Jesus has four brothers. We think perhaps he had sisters as well, but we're not told that. John chapter 7 and verse 5 tells us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. John chapter 7 verse 5, his own brothers didn't believe. It tells us in, Matthew, in Mark 3.21 that his family, during Jesus' public ministry, they thought he was out of his mind. So if you feel like your family just hasn't come around to believing in Jesus, or you think your family thinks you're out of your mind, you're in good company, Jesus' brothers thought the same of him. Um, and I think I have some sympathy for Jesus' brothers. As I try to imagine, what would it have been like to have been the sibling of Jesus? It would have been, I think, a struggle. So let's just imagine scenarios that play out in my house, right? So, let's, so there's a skirmish in the living room, and, and Mother Mary runs into the living room and says, what's going on here? And Simon says, Jesus started it. And Mary says, no, he didn't. <laughs> and that's got to be frustrating. And Simon says, you never think Jesus does anything wrong. And Mary's like, exactly. That's exactly right. One of the cookies go missing out of the cookie jar. Mary says, you boys get in here. Who is, oh, Jesus, you can keep watching your show. Which of you boys? Oh, I love it. You can just keep going. So, so Jude says, Jesus hit me. Mary says, go to your room for lying. That's a lie. You're grounded. Jesus didn't hit you. Um, so anyways, I'll stop. In Acts 1.14, we get a glimpse of Jesus' mother and brothers. Acts 1.14 is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 1.14, the disciples have gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they are awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts 1.14 that along with the disciples were Jesus and his brothers. So something changed whether it was during Jesus' teaching ministry, whether it was him on the cross, but most certainly his resurrection affected his own family, his brothers, changed from disbelief to belief, from thinking he was out of his mind to thinking that they wanted to follow him along with the disciples and spread the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth right along with the disciples. Something changed. And we see this in Jesus' brother James, who was listed, we can follow James through church history, and even in uh, the, uh, the uh, New Testament, you can see that James is Jesus' brother, and he is also one of the church leaders in Jerusalem. And so that's one of Jesus' brothers, and he writes a book in our Bible entitled James. But what is often missed is we also believe that Jesus' other brother Jude also wrote a book in our Bible entitled Jude, and that's the book that I want us to look at together in the coming weeks. We're going to have a, number, a couple of different missionaries in town, different guest speakers, so we'll be spread out a little bit, but we're going to take a number of weeks, and we're going to look at this 
often overlooked book of the Bible named Jude. It falls right before the book of Revelation. It's only one chapter. It has only 25 verses. So I think a lot of times in our eagerness to finish the Bible, uh, we skim right over it. Or in our eagerness to get to all of the interesting things in the book of Revelation, we just skim right over these 25 verses right before Revelation. It can't be that important. The only person I really know that has really prioritized Jude is Paul McCartney. Thank you. I've been asked not to sing anymore. But you know how the song goes. Hey, Jude. Apparently it was written about a different Jude, but uh, that's not the point of why we gathered. Jude is a letter that Jude wrote to a church, unnamed church. He writes this letter to this unnamed church, and we think around the late 60s, late 60s, not 1960s, the late 60s, Jude says, I'm going to write a letter to a church, and that's the 25 verses that we have. Let me give it a little bit of context. What's going on in the Roman Empire in the late 60s? Well, persecution has sort of broken out against the Christians, and here's why. And you can read all the history books about this. There was a fire in Rome, and Nero blamed that fire on the Christians, And as an outflow of that, then persecution towards Christians started to trickle out throughout the Roman Empire so that by the late 60s, when we believe Jude wrote this book, there is persecution of the Christians. So that's part of the context in which Jude writes this letter. But probably a greater help for the context is to highlight the fact that this is the late 60s, and so that means that Jesus has been gone from us for 30-some years. 30-some years have gone by since he was here. So what's happening? Well... Persecution has broken out, and we believe that both Peter and the Apostle Paul were both martyred in the late 60s as a result of the persecution that came from the fire in Rome. So the apostles are starting to die. And so the apostles are starting to realize we should write these things down. So the Apostle Paul has written these letters. They're circulating around the churches. Think of it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're writing down their accounts of Jesus so that we can have them and and treasure them and pass them down for generations to come. So they're writing things down. They're passing those letters around. But you've got to remember, this is the 60s. We don't have email. We don't have phones. We don't have ways to spread information. People are isolated in these cities around the Roman Empire and beyond. And so just think about it, right? Like a con artist could easily take advantage of this situation. They study what's going on. It's been 30 years. I've begun to understand the pattern here. I can just show up in a town and say I was with Jesus and spin a story and take an offering and I can just, I can get rich off of this scam. It's a, it's a con, I, could, I can play it. They've had 30 years to figure this out. So that's part of probably what's happening that Jude's saying like, hey, beware of false teachers. That's what Jude is about. You gotta beware of false teachers. This, you can't play around with the truth that's been passed down to you on the, the pillars of the apostles and the prophets. You have to hold fast to this faith that's been passed down to you. Another way this happens, though, in the church is false teachers pop up within the church. So people are along for the ride. They're they're watching this church develop. They realize, okay, people gather here every Sunday. All right, so this is what happens. They teach from the front. They collect an offering. The person at the front has power. Okay, so what I could do is I could have, like, some reinterpretation of the Apostle Paul's letter. And as I reinterpret it, I could get a following, And then that following would really appeal to a certain group of people. I could tell them that Paul Paul didn't really mean that. Paul meant this. And if you want to hear me teach, I'm over here. And the next thing you know, you have cults arising and you have false teaching arising. And people are saying that Jesus wasn't God. 
that he was just a man, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. And, and all of a sudden, you have false teachers, and they're, they're diluting the faith, they're changing the faith. And so Judah's saying, this has got to stop. You all have to have a letter that addresses this topic. There's growth pains here. The church is growing exponentially, which is wonderful, but we have to guard the truth. And such is the letter of Jude that we have before us today. I want us to work our way through the book rather slowly. So for this morning, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2, just the greeting. And we're just going to hit three main points. We're going to answer the question, who was Jude? And then we're going to ask the question, who am I? And then at the end, we'll have a blessing that we can all receive from Jude. So in Jude, verse 1, it says simply, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. If we stop there, we ask the question, who was Jude? And you say, well, you just told me he was Jesus' brother. And that's correct. We do assume and think that he was Jesus' brother. And here's why we think that. He's saying that he's James's brother. So as the church historians and Bible scholars get together, the, the simplest and most logical conclusion is that he's referring to James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem. There would have been lots, apparently, of people named Jude and James is a common name. So what the Jude is saying is he's saying, listen, I'm not a nobody. James, who leads the church in Jerusalem, that's my brother. Well, we can look at Galatians 1.19. We can look at church history, and we can see that, well, James is the brother of Jesus. So if Jude is the brother of James, then Jude is also, and I should be saying half-brother, so forgive me, but half-brother of Jesus as well. So Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Well, then why doesn't he say that in his opening? Why doesn't he identify himself as the physical half-brother of Jesus? Why wouldn't he play that card? It would open people's eyes. It would turn heads. Well, I think it's because Jude, it's not important to Jude's identity. Jude's saying, I'm going to identify myself in the opening of this letter. Here, this is who I am. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And I'm a brother of James. So to give you a context, I'm James's brother. He doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He says, you know what the most important thing I can do if I'm opening this letter? I'll give you my most core, essential, central identity, and that is I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant can be translated as slave. In our culture today, we're a little bit you know, timid regarding using the word slave. There's probably some wisdom there. American slavery is in a very recent past, so we try to be careful, but... American slavery is different than slavery that was in the Roman Empire that Jude would have been referencing, but, but there's similarities. Whether it's American slavery or slavery from the Roman Empire, there's certain things that Jude is clearly trying to communicate. Slaves, servants, they're owned by their masters. They exist for their master. They have no personal rights. They're at their master's disposal 24-7. They have no will of their own. They just live to fulfill the will of their master. And so Jude is saying, here's how I identify myself. I am totally surrendered to a good and perfect master. I no longer have a will. My will is to do his will. I no longer have any rights. I resign all my rights. And I only serve Jesus. He's my master and I'm his slave. And so he says, the best way I can identify myself is to say that I am a slave to Jesus Christ. No rights, no privileges. I'm just at his disposal 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Total surrender. That's how Jude identifies himself. So we ask ourselves the question, what if you had to write a letter? What if you had to introduce yourself to someone like Jude did? How would you identify yourself? Would you say that you're a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ? So we can all smile and head nod and, and pretend to be more spiritual than we are and, and just be like, let's get on to how to confront a false teacher. 
But I think we need to pause and just acknowledge the fact in some humility that it is not easy to be a slave of Jesus Christ. It's not easy to be a slave of anyone. I'm hardwired to want to do my own thing. I do not like it when people tell me what to do. You can ask my parents about that. Caroline tells me it's still a problem. I don't think so. I like calling the shots. I don't like being told what to do. I'm assuming the same is true of you. We have to also, in humility, acknowledge the fact that most of us in the room would identify as Americans. And so this is, this is deeply inbred into us. Low, um, uh, freedom, liberty, and independence. Those are the values that are inbred into us. We have a whole day on our calendar. It's called Independence Day. The most visited attraction in our state is the Liberty Bell. We value, as Americans, liberty, independence, and freedom. I don't care if you're on the right side uh, politically or the left side. The right side is saying, we want freedom, freedom of speech. The left side is saying, we want freedom, freedom to identify any way we want to identify. Both sides are shouting freedom for various different reasons. The point is, no one's shouting servitude. It's just not part of American culture. It would be good for us to just be self-aware of that. It's an uphill battle for us as Americans if we realize the fact that we are hardwired for independence, freedom, liberty. It's our identity that we're going to have to work through. We have other identities as well, obviously. Like I could identify as an American. I can identify as a Pittsburgher, as a father, as a son, as a husband, as a brother. We have all lot of options for how we can capture our identity. But what Jude is modeling for us is that there should be this central identity. The other identities are good. There's nothing wrong with him. He's the brother of James. That's wonderful. But at the core, at the center of Jude, he's saying, fundamentally, my identity is a slave of Jesus Christ. And that should be our identity as well. If we are truly surrendered to Jesus, then that should be our identity as well. But the concern I have as I look at myself and I look out on American Christianity is I think it's really easy for American pride and our Christian identity to bleed into one another rather than at the core and the center being I surrender all my rights, I surrender all my freedom, and I live for the will of Jesus Christ. And out of that center of myself will flow all my other identities. But fundamentally, I identify as a child of God, as a Christian whose rights are surrendered to my Savior, Jesus Christ, my Master. Identity is important. Jude is telling us, though, that's his how he identifies. If you identify the same way, if you say, I also am a servant of Jesus Christ, Jude's going to say, okay, well, then this is who you are. You are the recipient of this letter. You're not... You know, we're 2,000 years removed, but you are the recipient of Jude's letter. So he says, okay, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So it's no longer a question. Now this is who you are. You're receiving this letter. Jude's saying, I'm going to tell you what your identity is. If you have surrendered to Jesus as your master, then this is your identity. You are called, you are beloved, and you are kept. So let's talk about what these words mean, called. What does it mean to be called? Well, quite simply, it just means that you're chosen, you're selected, you're wanted, you're valued, you're, you're summoned by God. God looked down and he said, there he is. I, I want him. I want him. And I'm going to call him. I, I choose him. I summon him. Now, there's some tension here in our faith because oftentimes I'm up here telling you that you need to choose God. 
And yet, what Jude is saying is that, oh, but your identity is one, God, God chose you. And you say, well, I can't put those two concepts together. How can God choose me and I choose God? How do those two things fit together? We have Bible verses that say both things explicitly. So how do we resolve them? And my advice to, for resolving those is to um, take a step of humility and say that there is a seeming paradox in my human mind, but God is infinite. He's outside of time and space. And so I'm going to trust that he is great, as we've already sung, and he sees the resolution of a paradox that I cannot see. And so I will trust in his word that I am chosen by God and I must choose him and surrender to him. But in Jude, he is saying, you are chosen, and he is telling me I should identify myself as one who is called. God called me. He wanted me on his team. I've told you this before. Um, Friday nights are movie nights in the Glidden household. We have uh, pizza and a movie. I have three kids, and we go through a cycle. Caroline and I get a, a turn to pick as well. And so every five weeks, it's my turn to pick. This last Friday was Henry's turn to pick, so Henry loves baseball and so we were looking for a baseball movie, and Henry found the movie, Ed. Can anybody, does anybody remember the movie, Ed? Thank you. I see that hand. Okay. Here's the premise. It's wonderful. Um, this is 1996. Joey from Friends is at the peak of his celebrity. And he stars in this movie where he's a baseball player for a minor league baseball team. And he's a pitcher in a slump. The whole team's in a slump. And they decide, you know what can turn this team around? If we get ourselves a mascot, we're going to get ourselves a chimpanzee. And so they get themselves a chimpanzee, and the morale of the team starts to turn. And then they realize that the chimpanzee can play baseball. And the chimpanzee is a great third baseman. And he can jump, and he can throw, and he turns the team around. The, stands, the fans are full, stands are full of fans. And they turn their season around. The pitcher, Joey from Friends, it pulls out of his slump, and he becomes a great pitcher, and it's all because of Ed the Chimpanzee. Uh, my kids loved the movie. They loved it. Uh, I went online to Google it afterwards, and it turns out they're the only three people in the world that like that movie. <laughs> There's only three people. Everyone else says it's the worst movie ever made. Um, so I'm not sure who's right, but it was, it was a fun experience. Um, it's, it can be a bit of an illustration for what does it mean to be called. At the end of the movie, the manager for the Dodgers is in the stands, and he says, I want that pitcher. I want him. I, I want him on my team. I'm calling him up. So that's what God does. He looks down, and he says, I, oh, I, I, want, I want you, and I want you to be with me. It's a basic human desire is to be wanted. We all as human beings want to be wanted. And so the good news of Christianity is that there is a God in heaven who looks down and he sees you and he says, I want you. I want you to come and be on my team, be in my family. Now the baseball illustration breaks down because God does not look down from heaven and pick you based on your performance. Ephesians 1.4 says that he looked down before time. It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So God looked down from heaven, and he saw me, a pitcher in a real slump, 
And he says, I want him on my team. And I say, why would you want me on your team? I'm in a terrible slump. I have the same sins every week after week. I continue to fail you. Why would you want me on your team? And Jesus' response seems to be, for my own purpose, for my own purpose and grace, I choose you, I want you, I called you. I called you in eternity past to salvation. I call you in the present to good works. I called you in the presence to make disciples. And I will call you in the future to join me in heaven. But you are called, and that is your identity. You are called. Who am I? I'm called, and I'm also beloved in God the Father. This one is my favorite expression in the passage this morning. Beloved in God the Father. I like it so much because I would expect it to say beloved by God the Father. And some of the Bible translations do translate the words that way. And it's true. We are beloved by God the Father. But the way the ESV translates it, it says it's beloved in God the Father. And then I began to imagine, well, what does that mean that I'm in God's love? So it made me think of imagery from the story of the prodigal son. Right? You know the story of the prodigal son? The father, wealthy father, has two sons, and the youngest son says, I want all my wealth now. I know when you die, I'll get all my wealth, but I prefer you to be dead now so I can have my wealth now. He gives it to him. He goes off into a far country and lives a wild life, spends all his money and wakes up sleeping with the pigs, and he says, I'm going to go back to my father, and perhaps he'll let me be a slave in his home. He approaches the father's home. The father sees him coming from a long distance off. He gets up and he runs to his son. And I imagine their embrace. And in that embrace, he is beloved in the father. He is wrapped up in the father's arms, beloved in the embrace of the father, wrapped up in forgiveness and grace, given mercy and peace, welcomed home in his arms of love. When I pick up my kids and wrap them up in my fatherly arms of love, why do I love them? Do I love them because they obey? Of course not. I I love them regardless if they obey or disobey. Do I love them because because they perform in sports or, or in the arts? Of course not. That's absurd. Why would I love them based on their performance? Oh, maybe you love them if they try their hardest. No, I love them regardless if they try or don't try. I love them because of who they are. They are my children. And I called them into myself, and they are mine, and I will love them if they obey or disobey. I will love them if they perform well or if they perform poorly. I will love them even if they try hard or don't try at all because they are mine. And my love for them is not conditional upon how they perform. And God, and God says through Jude to you, that's your identity. Loved by God. In the love of the Father, regardless of performance, you have been called. Before you did a good thing, before you did a bad thing, he called you. And that's your identity, Jude says. See yourself that way. And then finally, he says, also see yourself as kept for Jesus Christ. Kept. Your identity as a Christian is one who is kept. So let's talk about that word for a minute. We all keep things. Some of us keep more things than others. You know who you are. Um... I like to keep certain things. I like to keep photographs. I pay uh, a a cloud, apparently, to keep them for me. I hope they're in good hands. Um, I keep books. Uh, You go to my office, you'll see a lot of books. You go to my home, you'll see a lot of books. My wife also keeps books. I think she keeps more books than I do. She keeps flowers. She keeps dishes. I prefer she keep them in the basement or perhaps just keep them at the thrift store. We all... (laughs) 
keep different things, don't we? Because we all value different things. I keep things that I value. I value my, my pictures. I value looking at them. I enjoy looking at them. I value books, and so I keep them because I enjoy opening them and looking at them and reading them. I keep things for myself. And this verse says that Jesus keeps you for himself. You are kept for Jesus. Other translations do translate it by Jesus. Also true. ESV says you are kept for Jesus Christ. That means he values you. That means he has kept you. He kept you in the past. Once you trusted in him, he keeps you in the present. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. And he will keep you into the future. Why? Because he values you and he will enjoy you. From the past on into the future and eternity, he keeps you because he values you and he will enjoy you forever. And you will enjoy him, certainly. But he keeps things he values and he values you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an identity crisis going on in our country and probably around the world. We want to identify ourselves by nationality, by skin color, by gender, by sexual orientation. Fine. But you got to get to the core. Because if you start on any one of those other things, you have got an identity crisis going on. But if you can start with, okay, fundamentally, I trust in Jesus. I am his slave. He is my master. My identity is one who is called. He wants me. My identity is one who's beloved by God. My identity is one who's kept because he treasures me so much. If you start there, then you will flow out into all of those other identities in ways that honor God and will give you great fulfillment in your life. But you've got to start at the core. You've got to get to that centered identity and who you are in Christ. And that's what Jude models for us and challenges us to do as well, is to see our identity in Christ as called, beloved, and kept. And then he says, if you can see yourself that way, then you're going to experience a blessing. He's going to say in verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Because Jude knows, oh, if that's your identity, then oh, receive mercy and peace and love. You gotta be humble to receive mercy. You have to realize, like, I'm the pitcher in the slump. There's nothing good in me. And it says, yeah, well, the blessing is this God just pours out his mercy on you. Receive his mercy. Mercy can be defined as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. So, yes. You do struggle. Yes, we do struggle. But God blesses you with his mercy. He pours his mercy out on you in, in the death of Christ on the cross in the past. He gives you his mercy in the present. His mercies are new each morning, Scripture tells us. And he will pour his mercies out for, on you in heaven yet to come. Peace. Peace. We have a crisis of, of peace. We, we all want peace. Peace for our soul. And so we, we pursue peace. We, we, we work out. We do yoga. We do meditations. We're trying to get peace for our soul. We scroll through our phones. Maybe that's how we'll get peace. We're, some of us fall into a trap of alcohol or drugs to get peace. We medicate for peace. We entertain ourselves because we can't live without the peace. Jesus' prayer, as he said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And I do not give it to you as the world gives it to you. Jesus says, I am going to give you a peace that passes all understanding, but it is not in the way that the world gives peace. He gives us peace that passes understanding, peace that is not dependent upon circumstances, 
Peace with God, no longer against God as you were before the cross, but peace with God, and then you will receive peace in this moment, and you will receive peace into eternity. Peace that could be illustrated by my friend, our friend, Virginia Klimko, who I had the opportunity to be with at her bedside the day that she passed, breathing tube down her throat, unable to communicate with me other than the glow in her eyes. But she was clearly communicating she was at peace, and her peace had nothing to do with the circumstances going on around her. Her peace had everything to do with her faith in Jesus Christ. He blesses us with mercy, with peace, and with love. And we don't have time, but love, we're confused on love too. We think love is an emotion that comes and goes, and we want to be swept off our feet, and and we're confused on love. Whenever love is Jesus Christ on the cross, love is seeing someone and wanting, wanting to help them, be willing to, to see someone's problem and, and do something about it. It's sacrificial. It's a choice. It's a verb. It's an action. And he has demonstrated in the past on the cross, and he floods you in it in the present, and he will give it to you in the future. Mercy, peace, and love are the blessings you receive. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Before we close, I'm going to give you one little bit of trivia. I didn't know this until this week, um, so you got a little insider tip here. Jude is not his name. So you go back to the Greek, and it's very simply translated. His name is Judas. His name is Judas. His, his name is not Jude. So Jude is like, when you call me Matt, my name is Matthew. When you call Jude, Jude, it's Judas, and we have all shortened his name to Jude. What happened is all the people that translated the Bible from the Greek, they all made an agreement and didn't tell us. And the agreement was, we're going to change his name to Jude. Does anyone know anybody named Judas? Yeah, like we stopped naming kids Judas for a reason, right? The, the English translators were like, listen, we don't want... Jude's identity being confused with Judas, so we're going to change his name. And as we go, it just reminds me that we will go to all kinds of efforts to change our identity. Maybe we change our name, maybe we change our job, maybe we move to a different city. But the only way to change your identity, according to Scripture, is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And your identity changes when you surrender your name to his, when you become his slave, whenever you say, I no longer have rights, I no longer have a name, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I pray that each one of you can identify that way today and experience his blessings this week.